Test. You can hear me? Doesn't sound like I'm on. I'm on, I guess. Fletcher says I have a thumbs up, so must mean I'm on. So yeah, it was great to hear from the kids and Jackie. And I guess Claire's not a kid anymore. But, um, and she, yeah, she, of course, my bad. Um, and you know, it, it, it struck me as they were talking that uh, what an embarrassment it is our, to our culture, um, since we have more scientific knowledge than ever, that so many people don't know um, the truth about uh, abortion. Um, look at me, I'm like Jackie, I'm cracking up. Um, I know, thank you. Um, and social media, we can talk about anything all the time, and we have science, you know, and we talk about, I mean, I don't know, I'm not on social media, but people apparently are, and they talk about dessert and why no one's picking up the trash, but they don't talk about important things. So, so, so I would uh, add, if you don't create uh, support created equal, either by prayer or financially, that's uh, a great thing to do. Thank you, Hannah, also for putting that together about, for Johnny. That was a neat time. Um, so really appreciate that. So we are in part seven of Romans. Um, my, my son asked me last night, how many parts are there going to be? And I said, I don't know. Um, so I, I literally don't know. Two, springboard off Wendell's sermon last week, I had actually designed this tattoo for myself at some point in the event that I wanted to get one. So can anybody tell what that is? Yes, dove heart. The, the obvious things that are there are in what are called negative space. It's actually not part of the tattoo. Um, it's the rest of it. So this is uh, actually my initial. I'm David Charles Stevens. And <laughs> thank you. Uh, anytime I start getting choked up, do that. <laughs> Be you. Thank you. <laughs> so and then Deanna Lee Stevens, she for some reason, married me, so. So yeah, so if you look at it, and the problem is no one will know what it means. It, well, I mean, of course, they'll see the symbols and won't know, but then. But of course, I, I have no desire to get one. It, it's more of a backup plan in case I'm forced to as a worship leader. Um, <laughs> it's kind of, it's like the, do I get the vaccine or not? Do I, do I quit leading worship or is Wendell, you know? I don't know, so it's one of the great. Oh, damn. Well, uh, okay, you've convinced me. <laughs> I'm gonna get, the only person that ever tried to talk me into getting a tattoo was covered with them, and it, he wasn't. It, no, I was like, I'm not doing that. So, so we've had uh, six parts in Romans so far. We've looked over uh, Paul's letter, not terribly systematically. We haven't been exegeting it, or we wouldn't even be this far. <clears throat> it's sort of the idea is to get the flow, some of the main arguments. <clears throat> My water bottle already, jeez, excuse me. And pick up what are the main arguments that we ought to remember as we walk away from the book. <clears throat> um, in the flow of the thought so far, after the introduction, you may remember he introduces Jesus' human ancestry of the Jewish Davidic line and his divine nature as evidenced by his resurrection. And these are all critical to the arguments that follows. He first addresses, you remember in chapter 1, the Gentiles. Uh, those who have uh, not heard the law is his whole point there. And he indicts the behavior of those who have chosen to disregard the universal evidence of God to whatever minimal degree they have it, uh, and spiraling into ever-increasing debauchery and the searing of their consciences. Um, and he ends with this intense reproach, although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only do these very things, but approve of those who practice them. But then a surprise comes at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, addressing those who do have the law, presumably the Jews. He is anything but congratulatory toward them, saying, um, even though they openly acknowledge God, uh, they, in the final analysis, do the same things for all practical purposes and even have greater guilt because they claim they ought to have known better. And it gets worse. The Jews' failings are not simply an in-house problem. They've caused Gentiles to stumble. And Paul adds to all that that some of the Gentiles have shown and demonstrated greater righteousness in their actions and their attitudes. So he's very 
hard on them. And then specifically, Paul warns them in the example of circumcision that uh, even though they possess the law, this does not create an immunity of any kind or make them untouchable simply by birthright or ritual observance. And then in chapter 3, Paul has hammered this point home so thoroughly, he predicts the question, what advantage then is there being a Jew or what value has circumcision? So Paul assures them of the significance of having been entrusted with the very words of God, God's words, his law, his promises, uh, all his expectations and conditions, they're all significant and they mean something, they're meaningful. God's written word, whether it's limited to the law or not, brings knowledge, it brings light, which then gives understanding. Uh, and he had shown his chosen people their role in the world and salvation history. Um, yet Paul comes back uh, later in that same chapter, verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? And I had favored sort of the 1984 NIV wording. I didn't have time to get into why the modern NIV says the same thing, and it appears that Paul is contradicting himself. Unfortunately, we don't have time to address that. Paul basically confers that Jews equal standing with the Gentiles before God uh, in the negative sense, declaring that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin. And then he applies a series of Old Testament references sort of in a new way um, that the Jews would have take, re taken rather poignantly and uh, rather to heart. So picking up where we left off then, we are here in chapter 3, verse 19. Um, and there's no mistaking that Paul is either still or again addressing the Jews, and this is where we'll pick it up. Uh, and this is from the uh, 1984 NIV. And if you see anything in parentheses, I decided to add the words that were added in the 2011 NIV that do seem to help clarify what's being said. So verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his or God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And if I had more time, I probably would have wrapped up, this wraps up the thought of that section, but it deserves enough attention, wasn't able to do it. So in verse 19, uh, Paul, I got, I got to remember to push my buttons here, I'm going to forget. Um, he uses this really comprehensive language where he says, whatever the law says, every mouth may be silenced, the whole world and no one. Uh, like we all do in everyday language, uh, sometimes these sort of all-encompassing words are in fact meant literally, uh, as in no one can run a two-minute mile. That's just a fact. And sometimes it's intended Instead, to stress the point we're trying to make, I had to correct students several times this week using, like, I literally, oh gosh, I, they're all so bad, I can't even think about how they use it, but, and I said, that's not how the word's supposed to be used, and we got in this whole thing, and I did not convince them at all. Um, but usually it means we're trying to stress the point we're trying to make, like, my kids never listen to anybody, um, which may be true, but pro probably not, or the whole world is against me, Costanza, but, um, uh, no one would ever turn in paperwork to the church unless I reminded them at least 50 times. That sort of thing. Or literally, Wendell exploded with rage. That <laughs> hopefully won't happen. Yeah. So the phrase, first uh, extensive phrase here, whatever the law says, can reasonably mean all the law in its actuality, in its entire breadth. And recalling Paul's recent quotations just before this, uh, these quotes were from the psalm in Isaiah, so it's very likely he might want to clarify that he's not excluding the law when he makes these remarks. What about the phrase, every mouth may be silenced? This kind of reminded me of what comes up later in Romans 14. We're very familiar with this. Uh, as surely as I live, says the Lord, where he's actually quoting from Isaiah 45, every knee will bow before me and every tongue will acknowledge God. So each of us will give an account to God. So we're kind of used to thinking of the um, everyone will confess, but here in 319, Paul is stressing the universal insufficiency of every man's claim to right living, and this is through silence. The Jew alongside the non-Jew, by again using Old Testament passages that would have been previously looked on almost like as assurance or comfort, he, Paul sort of turns them on his head, on their head to highlight the degree of their misunderstanding on the issue. In the end, uh, really, Paul's saying all excuses and boasts, and, and this would apply to the practicing Catholic and ascetic monk, the hedonistic atheist, uh, a faithful member of Trinity Evangelical Church. 
will all be silenced, or more literally, every mouth may be stopped, and we will all be held accountable to God. The terminology reflects the imagery of a courtroom uh, to shut the mouth, which suggests a situation where the defendant has no more, literally, no more to say in response to the charges brought against him or her. So this is intended to be very inclusive language. In the same context, he goes on to say, every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. He expressly includes the Jews with the rest of mankind, which definitely would have grabbed their attention. And at the same time, it maintains uh, God's lack of favoritism. It's like if I said to one of my classes, I need everybody to be quiet, and I'm kind of worked up about it because some people are talking. I'm clearly just admonishing those who are talking at the moment, but at the same time, it's true. I do want everyone to be quiet, but the people who are already quiet can, I guess, kind of ignore what I'm saying. Then in verse 20, uh, this brings us to the culmination of the first main point Paul has been building up to this entire time. Nope. I am not there. I don't know what happened to my slides. Okay, just look at verse 20. I thought I was going to underline it. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. And then he adds the additional assertion, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. While this taken together actually might appear to be a surprising thing to read for the first time, and maybe if you're Jewish, it might be blasphemous since the law came directly from God. The point isn't that Paul wants to add insult to injury here, but he arrives at what he sees to be the only possible conclusion. So first of all, consider the logic. If someone could keep the law perfectly and be utterly without sin, then such a person doesn't need to be made right in the first place. Uh, this, of course, would describe Christ alone. It's worth noting that Paul chooses the legal word declared, and again, apparently I lost the slide for this, to underline it, but you can all see it there on the screen. Um, declared is, again, a legal term and is deliberate reference to the forensic view of justification which, and acquittal, which we'll uh, elaborate on later. But to understand Paul's point, and this is really important, it's critical to understand the function of the law. That's what Paul's trying to get at here. Paul has shown it would be a mistake to think of the law was given to the Jews as their or, or mankind in general's means of salvation, like thinking if only they had tried harder, Christ needn't have died. Uh, that's not the point at all. He points out the limitations uh, inherent to or built into the very nature of law, and I mean that in the general sense, any law or any set of rules as he begins to explain its true purpose. So reading, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law, um, and again, I wish I had that underlined, but there in verse 20, if we read, therefore, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law, we tend to focus um, on no one will be declared righteous, the negative. The order and the severity of the word sort of distracts us probably into focusing on sort of the wrong thing. The emphasis here is on the inadequacy of the law itself as a tool for attaining righteousness. That's his whole point. We've probably all heard that the law serves as a mirror. That's one of its functions. Just as a mirror tells us what we're actually looking at rather than what we imagine, right? We've all done this. You go to leave, you look in the mirror, and you're like, oh, there's gum in my hair or something on my face, or if you're my wife, I'm still in my bathrobe, or whatever the case may be. Sorry, honey. I, I don't know why that seems like something that should be said. I'm not so sure now. I thought this was well said. A, a gentleman had put this paragraph together. It was on a Messianic Jew website, and I was kind of trying to get sort of more of the Jewish perspective of what, what might be taken by this, and that seemed like a good thing to do. He says, <clears throat> I think it was a he, he says, a mirror can be helpful to show you if your face needs washing, uh, but it cannot be used to wash your face. No one in their right mind would take a mirror and rub it on their face, maybe, maybe Johnny, I don't know, <laughs> um, to remove dirt. Uh, that requires a cleansing agent, right, like soap. This is exactly how it is with the law. The law reveals sin, which is actually good and necessary, but it cannot do anything about it. It cannot cleanse us from sin, but it can show us our need to be cleansed and in that moment create that profound sense of need for deliverance. The Phillips paraphrase I really like says, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. 
Uh, if it's true that no one achieves righteousness in God's sight by flawlessly maintaining the law, that means that no one's able to keep it at every point perfectly, then instead it necessarily and must serve as damning evidence instead. Not only are the recipients of the law not justified by it, but it would be more accurate to say that it functions to condemn them. Again, on the face of it, that sounds a bit ironic and maybe even paradoxical. And the fact is, it's not that easy to explore uh, Paul's systematic approach to the law. It, he often comes with very complex conclusions, like he'll say the law is holy, but it magnifies sin. It's perfect, but it brings about death. So what are we to make of this? Well, we'll <clears throat> talk about this more in chapter 7. I have five different places as we go through the material this morning, because it's only eight verses, but he starts these topics only to develop them later. So it's a little frustrating and unsatisfying because I'm going to have to say five times, we're going to come back to this later. I'll see you in six months or whatever. That's, unfortunately, that's how the book is written. But just a bit of a teaser here in chapter 7, verses 7, 12, and 13. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. That, nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. And then later, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, and this is interesting, he says by no means, but then nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, he used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So my guess is that's not the first time, or second time, hopefully, we've all read that passage, but it's a lot to take in, and I look forward to talking about that in a couple of years. Just so, it's not a joke, um, just so we don't miss it, uh, the limitations of the law are being used, I'm kind of repeating myself, but it's so important, the limitations of the law are being used to prove that that is precisely why adherence to the Old Testament was never the end game. It will not suffice ultimately. Something better has come along, and this is, of course, basically the subject of the book of Hebrews. If you've not read Acts in a while, Johnny and I have been reading Acts, and it's been very interesting. Picking up the story of the early church around chapter 10, that's when Cornelius the Gentile is told to send for Peter, and Peter has this vision of what should no longer be called unclean, and the conflict inevitably arises at the start of chapter 11, uh, which says the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So sometimes we forget that the church was all Jewish at one point. I, I know I did. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him. And it's like, okay, that, that helps me contextualize how, how strong they felt about those things and what rules were in place and why this is all problematic to them. <clears throat> These events are the beginning of a massive transformation in considering who God is willing to accept as Gentiles now became, uh, were now receiving the Holy Spirit. And then on to the Jerusalem Council there in chapter 15, the church fathers conclude that converts to Christianity need not even be circumcised, let alone follow the entirety of the Jewish law. Peter says in verse 10 there that the law had been a yoke and circumcision had been a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors had been able to bear. He admits this. Then Paul's Mars Hill address, moving on to chapter 17, he said, where he's still trying to persuade the Jews in the synagogue and then uh, in the town square, uh, the Greeks. He's still doing that, and then in chapter 18, he ends up in Corinth, where he's so fed up with the Jews, he finally says, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent of it, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. So just that nine-chapter span, so much happens in the history of the church, it's, it's, it's a lot to take in. But it helps us understand the dynamics of what was going on, at least at the time. <clears throat> and then this is a common theme for Paul in his other letters, like in, in Galatians 4, verses 9 through 11. He says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be, the law, of course, uh, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years, which again at one point would have been exactly the right thing to do. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. He has fairly strong feelings about this, apparently. <clears throat> so moving back to chapter 3, therefore the phrase, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law, 
is extended logically to all people everywhere and says just as much about the law as it does about man's sin, which I think, oddly enough, actually serves to soften the blow of what's coming. Uh, like, the, the law couldn't have saved you anyway. It doesn't remove man's responsibility in the least, but it does contextualize things very well. And this is a major conclusion. There's one of many major conclusions throughout Romans that serve as these kind of critical mile markers by which you need to know that to understand the rest of the book. And this is definitely one of those places where we kind of plant a flag and say, okay, that's, that's important. And so, in, in the book, we've officially bottomed out. Like, it's, it's as bad as it's going to get right here at the end of verse 20. Not, not only does none of this work, um, through the law we become conscious of sin, everyone is held accountable to God, so that the options that appeared to be on the table are sort of being swept off as Paul is rethinking them. This actually made me think of this graph I had given some time before. I had come to question this for multiple reasons, so I'm not going to leave it up here very long. But I like the idea that Paul is building an argument. That was certainly one idea, and there are obviously various fairly discrete parts to his argument. But I think Romans looks a little bit more like this, where he, he has this great introduction, and people think they know what's coming, but they don't know what's coming. They don't realize what he's going to say. And so we're kind of down here right now. This is the, apparently the Dunning-Kruger effect. This is the, this is the model that I, this is my emotional roller coaster every time I prepare a sermon. I think I know what I want to talk about, and then I study, I realize I don't know what I'm going to talk about, and then there's a slow rebuilding over time that is awful. Every time I fix up a house, this happens. Um, this, is just, this is an amazing graph. It's nothing. And this is actually, as you can see, it's actually measuring confidence and competence. We, you know, people know enough to be dangerous. That's the, the first hill, and then turns out they don't know anything, and then yeah, the, we're in the valley of despair. That's where we're at right now. Fortunately, we are moving on, and, and this is our last passage for the day, uh, verses 21 to 26. And have you ever done a sermon on this before? It's like, this is the best passage in the Bible, and it's like, I get to talk about it. But I think it's a trap, <laughs> is, is what I think, uh, because it's Romans, and it's like, you're going to screw this up. So... Uh, it's a lot of pressure because like Luther said about this uh, passage, it's the chief point in the very heart of the epistle and of the whole Bible. No pressure. Um, Leon Morris, I have some quotes from him later. Uh, I use a lot of study material, but he has a poignant way of saying things that I tend to really like. He said, uh, it is possibly the most important uh, single paragraph ever written, which is a lot to say. So six verses. Starting in verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law, in the general sense, has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Again, this is the NIV. Uh, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So obviously an amazing passage. Um, and I, I do want to say about this, um, it is, as Nate would say, it is rife with content. I was walking by you this morning. You were having a conversation with someone, and just the words, I, it was fantastic. I, I, I'm wondering what the person talking to you thought. That, that's what I want to know. But talking to you. No, you were not talking to me. Well, that time you were, but okay. Anyway, the thing is, there is just an abundant amount. The volume of the content here is significant, and the Greek that goes with it does cause its own complications, but I think it would be a mistake to think of this as a confusing passage. The difficulties in the passage aren't that it is actually that hard to understand. The essential meaning of the passage, I think, is plain enough, and I think that's something when we get into a passage like this, we have to keep that in mind. We don't want to get our noses so deep in the text that we forget the grand message here. That would be not good. I really liked uh, what, this is Dr. Ray Pritchard, he had this introduction <laughs> in his sermon to 
this passage. And I just wanted to read it because I thought it was so well said. Uh, this morning we are considering the great question in the world. And I'm going to read it so that way you can look at that. How can a man be right with God? In the supreme, it's the supreme problem of life. No more important question could ever be asked. Every sincere person asks this question. Every sincere Methodist asks, how can I be made right with God? Every sincere Presbyterian asks, how can I be made right with God? Every sincere Lutheran asks, how can I be made right with God? Somewhere in the world this morning, a man is... Hopefully, hopefully this isn't true. Hopefully, uh, somewhere this morning uh, in the world, a man is offering a child on an altar, hoping to appease his angry God. Somewhere, you're supposed to say a joke. It's your job, for crying out loud. Somewhere in the world, uh, a man is cutting himself with a knife, uh, hoping by his pain to win the approval of his deity. Somewhere in the world, a man lies on a bed of nails, proving by his mastery of pain to prove his worthiness of eternal life. In the Middle East, millions of believers in Allah's name are prey towards Mecca and following the dictates of their religion. In Haiti, followers of voodoo kill chickens and place their carcass before a makeshift altar, hoping to cause their God to smile upon them with good fortune. Why? Why do they do this? The answer is always the same. The men and women who do these things desperately want to be right with God. They know they must be. They do what they do because they hope to appease God or please God or to pacify God or somehow manipulate God into favoring their cause. And it is a totally sincere question, is it not? We all want to stand before God someday and have him declare us righteous in his sight. That one fact explains most of the religious activity in the world around us, from killing chickens to bowing in Mecca, from resting on a bed of nails to praying the rosary, from going to Sunday school to saying the Lord's Prayer. We do what we do because we want to be right with God, and we hope we know how to. What is the answer to this great question? Uh, how can a man be made right with God? To that all-important question, no answer is more satisfying than the answer given in Romans 3, 21 to 26. Amen. It is the essence of the gospel and the heart of the Christian message. So um, because the content is heavy, we still have to sort of go over it, but we even get, have to stop at the first word, uh, but just that word, because as Alan Carr observes, it is this little conjunction, but it denotes a change, and it stands as a worthy doorkeeper to the thoughts that will follow. Even the phrase, but now, it's like this magic phrase the attentive reader is desperately hoping will come along. Um, but now, you could think of it as a climax of sorts, promising a resolution to the tension, which is now at its highest point. But now is the good news that only now is being revealed in space and time. And, interestingly, but now could be thought of logically as Paul's next step in his argument, or temporally as but now in time, since God has, at this special period in history, finally intervened as was foretold. Remember, Paul has in mind all along to support these two claims. If, if you don't remember any other specifics from Romans, these would be helpful. Uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In 16, these are sort of two thesis statements or claims he makes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Obviously, he's focused on the Jew-Gentile relationship very heavily. Then in verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And this, of course, is the how all of this will be accomplished. So on to verse uh, 21. But now, we've gotten through that. A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and prophets testify. What is this righteousness from God? You have to wait a verse, and we'll get to that. 
what is established here is that the law is excluded as the means. That's the point. The answer lies with God, or you might say from God or of God, and is not only not the law, it's not the law that does this, or any law, set of rules, legalistic requirements in the general sense, as might have been expected, but the Old Testament scriptures, or what he calls the law and the prophets, have in fact foreshadowed another solution all along, says Paul. Uh, the word testify, the law and the prophets testify uh, or bear witness to is critical to his argument, as it says in the New Living Translation, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. I like how that's said. Paul knows his audience and understands his need to demonstrate what has happened. Um, first, he needs to show that it does not make, his argument does not make giving the law pointless. He's not saying the law is pointless. And secondly, he is not saying, uh, rather he's saying the Old Testament points to, in a positive way, the plan of salvation both for Jew and Gentile through a salvation that grants righteousness through faith. And this is a very tall order. If you have to be like, hey, prove this, you know, like this is, this is a hard thing to do. And the shift and the paradigm is so significant as people understood it at the time. And you can think about it. Consider those who aren't steeped in Judaism, how we can grapple with the Old Testament jump to the New Testament. It's, it's noticeable. Like, how is this the scheme of God's plan and what happens? So how much more must this, of course, be the case with the man or woman of Israel? God had set apart his people and used the law to accomplish his purposes, but not in the way they might have supposed. To support this point, point in, his, in that summary statement back here, uh, right there on verse 17, he's quoting out of Habakkuk already uh, to make his point. Lost my place. Okay, much like how Paul has only hinted at this theology of the law, he's just beginning to explore how the Old Testament foretells this. This is going to come up next week in chapter 4, and especially in chapters 9 through 11. So this is our second put a pin in it, we'll come back to it later. <clears throat> Apparently, Martin Luther, as a, uh, as a professor of biblical studies, taught more from the Old Testament than the New. That was something I didn't know. Uh, and in the Old Testament, Luther found Christ there as well. He saw in the Old Testament, same as in the New, that teaches a doctrine of justification by faith. But Luther had a problem. So lis listen to these words from him. He Quote says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in my way but that one expression, the justice or righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just, and therefore must deal justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. It's amazing. So what does Paul mean? How did this offer hope for Luther? How does it offer hope to any religious person that Dr. Pritchard sympathizes with around the world? How does this offer hope to us? For those who have had the advantage of sound teaching from the Old Testament, learned of the insufficiency of the law and works, the superiority of the new covenant, uh, the role of faith, careful explanations on God's grace, his justice, atonement, expiation, propitiation, then this will make a lot of sense to us. But this does not make a lot of sense to a lot of people. So we'll move on. Verse 22. This is still supporting, again, what Paul says in chapter 1, 16 and 17. How can all this be possible? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's kind of almost simple, you might say. How does one obtain this righteousness from God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is the favored rendering, and most translations use this, but you might, if you're in your Bible, see in your footnotes something like through the faithfulness of Christ, or more vaguely, the faith of Jesus Christ, or the, the King James seems to stand most in the middle by sort of literally saying, by faith of Jesus Christ. And all are possibilities, and do the original words justice, and again, we don't have time to really exegete this, but the feel of it is something like, this is, all of it, possible only through Christ, on account of faith. And so those are all in playing here. And this is actually a phrase Paul was pretty fond of. He uses the same here in Philippians 3, verse 9. 
and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. It's the same statement. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So he's actually not extrapolating what the faith means here. That we will get to talk about next week. So pin number three, basically. Uh, the important thing here is to step back and, again, not, like I said, get lost in parsing out the words too much. The, the main point here is that the link between faith and Christ is established here for the first time in the book. And, again, if you're a Christian who's read the Bible a lot, this is already in your mind. But right now, the way he's unfolding his argument, this is the first time that it's come up at all. None of these interpretations that I just said, anyway, are not, none of them are problematic. They simply change the emphasis of how righteousness through faith occurs, how to think of it, whether it's possible because of Christ's faithfulness, that's true, or accessible by faith in Christ, that's true. Even those are significantly different. They are both backed up other places multiple times in Scripture. So we don't really have what you might call a problem that needs to be solved where we let it lie, so to say, and do the best we can with it. Since they each make good sense, some have even proposed that Paul may have been comfortable with the possibility of the obscurity of his words. We don't know if that's the case necessarily. In the end, through faith in Jesus Christ, does seem to fit the context perhaps a bit better. And then what about the, con the sort of expansiveness to all who believe? That's, that's a fun one. Paul here is not exploring, first of all, the opportunity. Who will get to hear the gospel? But maybe the question is, is he considering ability? Is faith in Christ actually accessible to all who know of the gospel? Is that what he's getting at here? Well, I would argue what does seem clear here, I should probably get rid of that, is that sort of reading the verse in reverse, belief does and will produce this saving effect. No one comes to the Lord with true belief and desire no one in that case will be found unrighteous. That's what's being guaranteed in this verse. Uh, that's sort of the contrapositive of that statement. I'll let you think about that. But one could make the point, uh, well, one, yeah, sorry, but one could make the point, what is not yet necessarily being addressed here is whether or not such a belief is in fact readily available or attainable. It simply says this righteousness comes through faith Again, the unfolding of what is the faith, faith accessible, how does that work, that is yet to be discussed. So, uh, yeah, another thing we get to talk about later. Um, is all implying an invitation to everyone, or is it more illustrative of Jews and Gentiles as representatives of the whole of mankind, and maybe not to be taken too literally? Since this matter is just now unfolding, we will continue to keep our eye on all such questions, but at the same time, we have to be careful not to jump to judgment too quickly and not when we're not well informed enough on the matter. Does that make sense? We want to uh, be careful. And then we have these amazing two and a half verses that really just all go well together. There is no difference at the end of verse 22 between Jew and Gentile in the updated NIV. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The end of verse 22 is put together clearly with verse 23, and then verse 24 completes the thought. It's the great conclusion Paul seems to have been anticipating this whole time. Um, and just notice how sweeping these statements are and how quickly the bad news turns into the good. In verse 22, there's no difference. It's very simple. Ultimately, all stand before God with the same need. Uh, so the all in verse 23 is definitely universal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this, as one person said, I lost my quote, but they said this sums up the human tragedy. That is so true. There is so much that could be said. Uh, this, I mean, you could do a sermon series on verse 23. Uh, one commentary I have has three chapters on verse 23. I skimmed it. I, and I mean, that's not really true. I read it, but I can't do much with it. Um, obviously, we don't have the time. And it's, it's deserved. There's great material here. So if you are needing something to read, you can read about verse 23. You can learn about prolepsis and all kinds of fun things. Uh, we will briefly look at just the key phrases here and how they're tied together. That's what I think we are going to benefit most from walking away with. 
<clears throat> so have send in the original, what I'm not going to get too technical here, but I, you should be able to follow this quite well. The aorist tense of the word translated have send carries the sense of past and completed action, but there's no way Paul is supposing the act of sinning is completely done away with and isolated to a past event and terminated. So in the English, we use the perfect tense and that makes sense. Then in the present tense, falls short. Uh, conveys not only that this is still even now the case, but in the context, all continue to do so, even believers. The pervasiveness of the condemnation here almost can't be overstated. Probably the most unexpected thing, at least for us here, is that what we fall short of. We fall short of the glory of God. It's actually a very curious expression, as we might have expected something like we fall short of perfection, or we fall short of salvation, or we fall short of pleasing the Lord, or righteousness. Because elsewhere in Romans, glory is typically a future idea, like in chapters 2, 5, and 8. It's glory to be revealed, you know, in the last time. But, for example, in 2 Corinthians and John, there is such a thing as a present glory. And when we consider mankind in the Garden of Eden, it seems God intended us in some way to share in his glory, although that is not a very well-defined thing in the Bible. In verse 24, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Yet again, another verse that you could do a whole sermon on, um, while by his grace is what might grab our attention, I think this is very interesting because that's the good news, right? It's critical to note that God's grace or his undeserved love and favor is simply the means by which we obtain what we actually need, which is justification, and that is to be declared righteous. That is not the same thing as practicing righteousness or in the sense of that we've been all of a sudden we're made virtuous or we're sanctified. That is a totally different topic. It is this, well, mostly totally different. It is a, a declaration on the basis of Christ's saving work that believers are put right with God. That <clears throat> this is due to no merit of our own is apparent by the word freely, as in the manner of a gift, and as we said, by his grace points to unmerited favor, and that of God, and in the Greek, the and that of God really puts the emphasis where it ought to belong if we <clears throat> were able to read that. And we have not gotten to the foundational truth of all of this yet, if you read through his verse, that his grace was made possible. This is only through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So like the connection we saw in verse 22, that righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, here we see kind of a similar connection made in the application of grace given by God through the work of Christ. And then again, back to justification real quick. Calvin calls that the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is, again, a, another deliberate legal metaphor frequently used by Paul. I mean, you just can't get away from it. But some shy away from or minimize the implications of justification. But this is just unfounded. The point is not that a legal framework is the only way to imagine how our relationship is restored to God, but it is, at very least, a very valid perspective and one we're not at liberty to dismiss. And we can learn a great deal from it. Finally, it should be pointed out uh, that these verses right here that I have underlined in isolation to its surrounding can be very misleading. And this is such a great memory passage that actually happens a lot. If you look at it, the prerequisite faith in Jesus Christ in verse 22, and then later faith in his blood, faith in Jesus, are absent from the core of the message. So if you were to read out of context, there's no difference, all have sinned and fall short, but they're all justified freely, you get a very, very universalist message, even in the Greek wording, if you were to take it out of its context. But surely it is plain and obvious that belief and faith in Christ are indeed, as I said, prerequisites. In other words, it's unreasonable to ask Paul to qualify every statement he makes in every verse, or he would never get anywhere. I've been guilty of doing that myself. Verses 25 and 26. And this is going to be exceptionally brief. You might think it's due to time, but it's mostly due to the fact that Wendell has actually talked about these concepts very well and often. So uh, I have most of my work done for me. In verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The phrase presented him might bring to mind the economy of the Trinity as it applies to our salvation, that all the parts of the Trinity are involved in Wendell, as I said, is taught on this. Um, and you'll see its evidence in the rest of the pa uh, passage. Sacrifice of atonement. 
uh, means the one who could turn away wrath or taking away of sin. This is usually translated propitiation as the King James, NASB, and ESV translate the word hilasterion. Um, it's an important word in the New Testament. Um, so as it says here, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Uh, Hilasterion, used in the Septuagint, or the Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, refers to the mercy seat in connection with the ark, and that's actually how this uh, CSB uses it, the Christian Study Bible. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So a, a little bit more of a literal approach there. Um, lost my notes. The most subtle shift away from propitiation is how the RSV uses it, very interesting, whom God puts forward as an expiation by his blood. And again, you may remember Wendell talking about this. Expiation means to make amends or to atone for and implies the removal of cleansing or cleansing of sin. It can mean the removal of the reasons where propitiation means to make favorable, which sounds similar, but it also includes averting wrath, and that's the important thing. It's the act that appeased the wrath of God and therefore appeased his judgment. Because of the appeasement or completeness, propitiation is often understood using the word satisfaction. The NIV uses what might be considered the weakest meaning um, using, as we see here, sacrifice of atonement. The new living is similar with God presented him as a sacrifice for sin. One argument in favor of this is how later you see Paul says, by faith in his blood, and this would naturally connect with the idea of shedding blood through sacrifice. But like everything else here, it would be developed more later. Uh, a wonderful example um, that I just can't skip, even though I don't have time to read this probably, uh, is in chapter 5, because it just does, says this so well. Uh, verse 9, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, uh, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Um, <clears throat> and Morris says, He sees the death of Christ, Oh, I think I have this here. Um, and, and this is actually a really important quote he says here. The death of Christ, and, and uh, Carson wrote a book on this, he sees uh, the death of Christ as the great divine act can be viewed from many angles. Indeed, one of our problems in working out what Paul thought the cross did is the fact that he speaks of it doing so many things and never works them into a unified system. So that makes for an interesting discussion. You have justification, which is law imagery. We've all heard the use of redemption. That is slave imagery. And then we have propitiation, which is the averting of wrath. And in closing here, our last point here, as much as we might be ready to get on board with God's wrath against us being appeased, right? That sounds great. And someone else doing it, uh, that sounds awesome. But as William Barclay puts it, the natural thing to say, this is like what Luther said earlier, the inevitable thing to say would be God is just and therefore condemns the sinner as a criminal. That's what would make the most sense. But that's not what we read here. Uh, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So one last comment. God's justice is referred to, as you can see, no less than four times. So this is definitely a main focus. In the first instance, he refers to the past. It is clear that God's forbearance or his withholding of punishment, which he may have inflicted otherwise at the time, if it was indefinite, this leaves God's justice open to question, since punishment cannot be indefinitely delayed. So this demonstration of justice and patient, we might, patience, we might say, has come to fruition in the present. At the present time, as it says, is set over and against the sins committed beforehand. But then, of course, the question arises, how is it that God is both the one demanding justice and at the same time the one who satisfies the demands of justice? Is God receiving his own sacrifice? And just three thoughts here on that. One, Paul here simply states it as fact. That is the case. Doesn't explain how. Second, we have the persons of the Trinity, the Son offering himself as the sacrifice, the Father accepting it, and this is applied through the Holy Spirit as we read in Hebrews and, again, as we've taught on before. 
and this, and this is what I'd like to close with, a few thoughts that Morris had, and these were just all so good, I didn't want to put them in my own words and be guilty of plagiarism. Uh, Morris says, the cross shows us God's inflexible righteousness as the very means by which sins are forgiven, which is very interesting. And in the end, Paul declares that God saves uh, in a manner that is right as well as powerful. The claims of justice as well as the claims of mercy are satisfied. And in that light, I especially like what he says here at the end, there is no antithesis, like we only imagine it to be there between God's justice and his mercy. He plays by his own rules. So, what a great God we serve. Amen. So, uh, next week, much simpler, we're going to talk about faith. That's it. That's it. So, your uh, job assignment, um, preparation, that sounds better, uh, is to read the rest. Uh, there's four verses left in chapter 3, and then chapter 4, uh, the story of Abraham, we'll get into that um, so we'll talk then. On October 4th, it's a Tuesday of this year, uh, the Jewish people all around the world will gather together and will remember Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And... What they do is sometimes they'll gather together as families or as friends and they will think back on the year prior and recognize their need to repent of sin, to, in many ways as we celebrate New Year's, to um, set new goals of right living for the next year and they will recognize their need for atonement. And typically what it, what it comes out as is, well, I'm, I need to be atoned for, my sins need to be atoned for, so I'm going to make sure I apologize extra hard, extra intentionally to people around me. I will make sure that I do some, some good deeds to atone for my wrong choices in the past year, and a variety of other feeble gestures like that. But the, the more religious amongst the Jewish people the ones who have spent time in, in God's law and the Pentateuch, they, they have a feeling, they know that's not enough. They know that they have a desperate need for atonement, but they're missing the temple, and they're missing the intermediating priests, and they're missing the sacrifice for that atonement. And so if you go into the more religious areas in Israel and around the world, you will find these devout Jews who are in desperation. They will gather their families around them and they will cut the throat of a chicken and they'll, they'll, they'll whirl that chicken around in the air above their heads and above the head of their family in a desperate hope that the blood that sprinkles on them would somehow atone for their wrongdoing and for their unrighteousness before God. And they're knowing in their heart of hearts that they are lost without the temple. They are lost without God's presence. And actually Yom Kippur in that sense becomes a very sad and dark day. Especially for us believers who know how atonement is found. Who know how it can be achieved. Who know the final and the great high priest. So as we pray for our Jewish neighbors, I'm also thankful uh, for the good news this morning that David elaborated on, that we are not lost, but that a way has been made, and that we can have righteousness before God, that we can be clean and right in His eyes, and that it's possible outside from the law, that it can be apart from the physical temple that we can have righteousness through faith in Christ's atoning death for our sin. Amen? It's a good place to be. It's a sweet place to be. So with thankfulness in our hearts for this truth, let's walk out our faith today and this week. And let's look for opportunities to share that hope 
with the lost around us. Can we do that? Let's stand together and uh, we'll actually read from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace and greet one another.